Well, so here we are today. We've been studying through Romans chapter 8, a chapter I personally consider the greatest in the entire Bible. And each week, we've been looking at an aspect of how God is for us. Remember back in week one, we saw that God is for us because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Then we saw that God is for us because he gave us the Holy Spirit to help us have victory over sin. We saw that God is for us because he allows us to be adopted into his forever family. We saw that God is for us because he gives us a solid foundation that provides hope in suffering. And last week, we saw that God is for us because he works all things for our good to make us more like Jesus. And so we come to the final section of Romans 8 today, a familiar one that I love dearly. God, as we open this section of the word, I just pray this morning, I believe you really have something to say to each of us and to New Life Church this morning. So God, speak it. Give us spirit ears to hear it, God. Knock down the defenses around our hearts that fends off what you want to say to us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Conquerors. What do you think of when you hear that word? Video games, maybe? Movie or TV? Gladiators, warriors. Maybe castles or knights or dragons. Maybe suits of armor and swords and spears. Well, for us to understand this passage we're going to look at today, it really doesn't matter so much what we think when we hear that word. What did the Roman believers in the first century think of when they read that word, conquerors? Now, imagine you're living in that day, someplace in Europe or maybe Western Asia. You're living your life like you always have. When out of the blue, an enemy sweeps in and takes over. You have no warning. There's not satellite pictures or cable news networks to warn you. And when this enemy arrives, it changes everything. Your new overlords might impose all kinds of new rules and laws. They might put you in your place by disrespecting your traditions or religious beliefs. They might force you into submission by cutting off essential supplies like food and water. They might maim or kill your leaders, may, maybe take members of your family. They might even force you from your familiar life, make you a slave, perhaps even uproot you from everything you've ever known, and take you to their country. In that day, conquering was no game. It was no screenplay. And so Paul uses this illustration of conquerors to depict the tremendous power source we have as followers of Christ. So let's read the conclusion of Romans chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 31. You can go there on your device. If you're old school and you like a paper Bible, grab that. It's on your study guide in your worship folder. You can find it there. Follow along as I read it. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. This is the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, 
In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Just take that in for a second. Paul has laid out these great truths of the Christian faith throughout Romans chapter 8, but like a great story reaches a climax, like a sports contest reaches the final ticks on the clock, like a symphony reaches its ultimate crescendo, Paul brings this glorious chapter to a masterful conclusion in an almost poetic way. So let's dig in these verses in detail and see what the Word has for us. First, in verse 31, he starts with, What then shall we say to these things? What things? Well, he's referring back to the previous parts of chapter 8, and really especially to verses 28 through 30. We talked about those verses last week. Remember verse 28? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, what then shall we say to these things is not just some throwaway phrase here. Paul is telling us two things about those previous verses. First, He's showing us that the promise that all things work together for good is true, even when it seems like it's the exact opposite. Paul wants us to believe that all things will work together for good, and he's about to build the case for that. And second, this phrase is telling us that Paul is still talking to the same group of people he was talking to in verses 28 through 30. Those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Remember Pastor Steve last week, he said that's one group with two characteristics. The audience is Christians, believers. So Paul says that all things work together for good for Christ followers. Then he starts to build the foundation for this truth through a series of rhetorical questions. The first one comes in the second part of verse 31, and it's the one we've been talking about throughout the series. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, Paul says, if God is for us. Is that really a question? The word rendered if here could also be translated since or because. So no, it isn't really a question. God is for believers through all circumstances, good or bad. But back to the question, since God is for us, who can be against us? Now, is that saying nobody's ever going to be against you? Well, think about your life. I'm guessing that every one of us probably has an enemy or someone that doesn't like us. Maybe it's a coworker, or maybe it's a boss or another student at school or a neighbor. might even be a family member. And if you don't have a single human enemy, there are enemies in the unseen spiritual realm who want to destroy your life and your ability to follow and serve Jesus. We're going to talk about that in a bit. So Paul clearly is not saying nobody will ever oppose us. What Paul is saying is that because of God's love, because God is for you, no one can successfully be against you. Your adversaries may find temporary success, but in the end, they will lose. God thwarts the schemes of the enemy and the opposition of men. He's in the business of turning bad into good. God is for his children. Now, Paul spells out the reason for this in verse 32. The reason gives him absolute confidence that God is for us and nobody can successfully be against us. 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, do you see the gospel peeking through here in in verse 32? I want to make sure that we're getting the implications of this connection that Paul is making here between the gospel and the fact that God is for us. Verse 32 starts out by saying that God the Father did not spare his own son, but instead gave him up for all of us. Now, I think for a lot of us who have heard the gospel many times, we've become desensitized to the magnitude of what Paul is saying here. We don't get the true size of the obstacle God had to overcome to provide our salvation. So what is that obstacle? I think it's so obvious that it's easy to miss. It is God the Father's all-consuming love for Jesus. Jesus, the only non-adopted son of God the Father. Giving him up meant the Father was voluntarily sending him to be mocked, betrayed, abandoned, rejected, disrespected, physically tortured, separated from the Father, and finally killed. Now I ask you, parents, are you wishing that on any of your children? Or would you do everything in your power to prevent even one of those things from happening to any of your kids? Now, consider for a minute, this isn't some flawed human parent. We're talking about God here. A God with a perfect love and indeed a special bond between two persons of the Trinity we can't even begin to understand. That's what did not spare him is saying. What God did was a very hard thing. And don't believe for a second that the death of Jesus was some helpless reaction to circumstances. It was a choice made by the Father to give Jesus up. Now, sure, Judas, Pilate, Herod, Jewish people, they all had a part in it. The Bible tells us the Gentiles are just as guilty, indeed each of us is. Jesus himself said he laid down his life. Nobody took it from him. But God the Father is the one who ultimately delivered Jesus over to death. The Father could have prevented all other parties in the situation from doing what they did. He could have supernaturally rescued Jesus from the rejection and betrayal and pain. He could have refused to let Jesus sacrifice himself. He didn't. It is the single greatest act of love ever. God the Father chose love for us over love for his one and only Son. Just consider that for a moment. Do you get how much God has done for us? Do you grasp the grand scope of God's love for mankind? You know, we sing those words, when I think that God, his Son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That lyric should remind us of the incomparable depths of God's love every time we sing it. So based on the sacrifice of God, we see a progression here from greater to lesser, from hard to easy, from gigantic to puny. In other words, if God did this incredibly hard thing, how will he not graciously give us all things? Stacked up against giving up Jesus, What's meeting our needs compared to that? Believing God is for us means depending on his power source in us. 
there could not be a greater power source than the unmatched and undeserved love of God. Then verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. On to Paul's next question. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Or maybe said a more contemporary way, who can accuse us? Paul returns here to this courtroom analogy. Remember that? We saw it earlier in chapter 8. And this question is like verse 31. Does nobody ever accuse us? Of course not. The enemy does this constantly. The book of Job uh, gives us a picture of it in Job chapters 1 and 2 as Satan unjustly accuses Job to God. The Bible says that Job was a righteous man, but Satan still tried to discredit his motives. Look, Jesus himself was tried, convicted, and executed based on false charges. But also like verse 31, no one who accuses us can finally be successful. No one can make their charge stick in heaven's courtroom. They will all fail. Then Paul says, it's God who justifies. Now, Paul is telling us why the charges don't stick. Because God has justified us. The blood of Jesus covers our crimes. Now, given Paul's courtroom analogy, let's consider this balance scale. You know, you guys watch TV and movies and stuff. This has been a symbol of, of justice for a long time. Now, the Bible says that our deeds are like filthy rags. And so as God looks at each of our lives, our sins go on one side of the scale. Since there's nothing to counterbalance it, it only takes one sin to tip the scale. The verdict is guilty. And unfortunately, the only penalty a holy God can hand down for this guilty verdict is death. And I dare say we don't have just one sin, so our sins pile up on the scale. But when you place your trust in the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf, when you accept his sacrifice as your only hope to escape sin's penalty, all it takes is one drop of his blood. And it will tip the scale in your favor and cover a lifetime of sin. When you put your trust in Jesus, you don't have to be perfect. Rather than our actions our failures or our sins it becomes about his sacrifice one drop of his perfect blood will outweigh your mountain of sin and you can avoid that guilty verdict because of the cross the charges against you have been dropped god's incredible love choice has expunged your record those who believe in christ will never be found guilty god the father who justifies the judge will pardon you because of the weight of the blood of jesus and there's no higher court than God, so you can't get overturned on appeal either. Then verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God and who indeed is interceding for us. So yet another question here. Who is to condemn? Now, in Paul's courtroom analogy, who would condemn a person? What's well, the judge who pronounces the sentence, right? And as I said a second ago, our ultimate judge is God the Father. This question is similar to verses 31 and 33, but, but here the focus is totally on who stands between you and those who would condemn. 
who argues your case before Judge God? That would be Jesus. So here we have the gospel again. Verse 32 talked about the Father's part. Verse 34 talks about the part that Jesus did and continues to do. And it tells us four things in this verse about Jesus. First, Jesus died. He didn't just die, he gave his life. He died in our place as our substitute to provide the only payment that's enough to outweigh our sins, his blood. Then second, Jesus was raised. Now, Paul says Jesus died, but more than that, he was raised. If Jesus had just died, and that was the end of it, well, so what? Everybody dies. It's the fact that Jesus isn't still dead that's really important. And notice it doesn't say Jesus rose from the dead. It says he was raised. Jesus didn't raise himself. The Father was so satisfied with the cross work of Jesus that he vindicated him by raising him from the dead. This is evidence that the death of Jesus is an acceptable payment for sin. Then third, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. What does that mean? Well, Old this is Old Testament imagery of absolute rule and authority. Jesus is ruler over everything, and according to Psalm 110, all enemies are under his feet. Verse 1 says this, The Lord, meaning the Father, says to my Lord, meaning Jesus, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is the single most quoted verse by New Testament writers, 13 times. So it was clearly a meaningful image to the people of that time in their culture. Then fourth, Jesus is our intercessor. Or maybe in this courtroom picture, we might say he's our advocate. Jesus is your defense attorney. He's making the case for you, and he's better than any of those guys on law and order. You know, this is put into practice every time we pray. You ever thought about why we stay in Jesus' name? It should remind us, every time you hear that, we have not any right to approach the Father of our requests except for what Jesus did. Jesus defeated all condemnation through his death and resurrection. He's alive, he's ruling over creation, and he intercedes for you. He's taking your case as your advocate. He says, Father, my blood pays for this child's crimes. So your accusers, they get no traction. Those witnesses in the courtroom never even get called to a stand. Listen to me, the next time Satan hits you with his accusations, remind him of these truths. Tell him, Jesus died for me, Jesus was raised for the dead for me. Jesus rules over all creation, including you. And Jesus is in heaven pleading my case with Almighty God, so go away, you're defeated already. Then verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now Paul asks this final rhetorical question here. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? And just to be clear, it's not talking about our love for God. It's talking about his love for us. So the answer is, once again, nobody. Okay, so no person can separate us from God's love. But what about difficult circumstances? The answer is still no. 
That's why Paul gives such a comprehensive list here. He didn't want us to think, well, you know, some really horrible thing might come along and that'll separate me from God's love. Nope, sorry, wrong answer. So let's run through Paul's list here. First, tribulation. The dictionary says that's grievous trouble, severe trial or suffering. Distress. That's defined as acute physical or mental suffering, a a state of extreme necessity or misfortune. Persecution. Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.12, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's a promise for you. Famine. Famine means an extreme or general scarcity of food. Maybe in 21st century America, it would be more like lack of money, perhaps due to not having a job. Nakedness. Now, Paul's not talking here about not having any clothes at all. He's talking about being vulnerable or unprotected, like maybe not having a coat in winter. Danger. You know, many of our brothers and sisters around the world face danger daily in their stand for Christ. Even in America, people who stand for Christ are going to be ridiculed or harassed, maybe hurt economically. Then there's swords. This is talking about being at the target of a weapon. And Paul, u- the word Paul uses here implies a weapon that can be concealed. None of these things can separate us from the love of Christ. Now, Paul is not saying we won't face calamities in life. Verse 36, which is a quotation of Psalm 44, verse 22, makes that clear. It's saying that believers may face death or trials for Christ every day. Not going to spend a ton of time on this because Pastor Steve talked in depth about having hope and suffering two weeks ago. But what Paul is saying is that we can have joyful suffering, perseverance despite suffering, unwavering faith in suffering. God's love and power doesn't promise that we're exempt from these things. It promises that we won't be alone as we face them, that God will sustain us through them, and that we can have joy as we endure them. John 16, 33. Jesus said this, I have said these things to you, that, that in you, or that me, you have, may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the world, and what he has done and is doing gives us ultimate victory over the difficulties of life. Which brings us to verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Despite the difficult things we will face, we are more than conquerors. Paul says it's through him who loved us. Well, who is that? Verse 32, the Father that gave His Son. Verse 34, Jesus who died, was raised, is ruling and interceding. We started out talking about the dominance of conquerors in the ancient world. But Paul doesn't say here we're just conquerors. He says we're more than conquerors. The Greek word here means like overconquer. Like when God's for us, we can defeat these things with success to spare. You have more than enough power to do whatever God calls you to do. Now, let's keep our part in this in perspective. Paul reminds us this overconquering is not because of anything about us. It's all because of God the Father, Christ the Son, and the indwelling Spirit that we have this power. Then finally, verses 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, 
nor anything else in all creation will separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul starts out by saying he's sure. He has thoroughly laid out his case throughout Romans 8, and because of what he knew, because of what God had revealed to him, and because of what Paul had experienced in his own life and ministry, he was convinced of the truth of what he was about to say. He's really answering his own question in verse 35. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. He's going to illustrate this fact with another list, a list of things that can't stand between believers and the love of God. Now, in this one, he sets up this series of opposites, right, to show the scope of this truth. He starts with death. You know, for the believer, death isn't defeat. It's not the end. It's a homecoming. It's victory. And he says life. All the cares of living, the difficult circumstances Paul lists here, nothing can put a barrier between us and God's love. Then he says angels. Now, an angel would never try to separate you from God's love. This one's hypotheticals. Here is one end of a spectrum. But on the other end, you have demons. Demons, on the other hand, fallen angels, they will always try to separate you from God's love. Paul is saying no supernatural being, good or evil, can do it. Then things present or things to come. Nothing we have experienced or are experiencing or will experience can separate us from God's love. Then he says powers. Now the meaning of this one's debated. It's the Greek word dunamis, which means miracles or mighty deeds. No extraordinary event can come between us and God's love. Now this translation kind of lines up with the scholars that think that Paul is using this word figuratively to mean persons with positions of authority or power. They can't do it either. Height and depth. The Greek words used here refer to the high and low points of a star's path. I think Paul's trying to convey the infinity of space in every direction, from the top of Mount Everest to the bottom of the ocean to space far beyond the earth. No matter where you go, God will still love you. And then he tops the list off with anything else in all creation. Well, since only God himself was not created, that really sums up everything and anything else. Because of God's infinite power and love expressed in the gospel, we can be as sure as Paul was that God is for us and nothing can separate us from his love. So in light of these gigantic, mind-blowing truths, what does this say about how we should live? As we've gone through these verses, we've talked about their impact to each of us as believers in Christ, and that's certainly appropriate. But notice the plural language Paul uses throughout this passage. If God is for us, who can be against us? Gave him up for us all, gives us all things, interceding for us. We are more than conquerors. We're being killed all the day long. See, Paul isn't just speaking to us as individuals. He's also talking to us collectively as the church. Yes, we each have an individual mission to fulfill. But Paul is speaking also to us as a group about the larger mission of the whole church, too. Jesus talks to seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, and he gives this kind of spiritual report card. He says, hey, I see you're doing this well. Could you do some work over here? What's God saying to New Life Church through these profound verses today? Well, I think there's three applications that we need to make. Here's the first one. Wake up. 
wake up. Maybe this is just me, but as one of your pastors, I've had this feeling for a while. New life as a church needs to wake up. Now, I know some of you are already saying, Pastor Joe, how can you say that to us? Look around. Isn't this body doing good things? Sure we are. Lots of good stuff going on around here. But those churches Jesus talked to in Revelation, he told about their good things too. Are we really being everything God intends us for us to be? Are we doing everything we can for the cause of Christ? Are we just a little bit comfortable here in suburbia? Are we saying things like, well, go this far, God, but no further. I'll give you this much, God, but sorry, the rest of this is mine. If I have my desires and plans, God, you just need to stay out of my way. Paul spelled out this incredible power source throughout chapter 8, whether it's living according to the Spirit or understanding our adoption into His family or living with future glory in mind, knowing that all things work together for our good, understanding that God gave everything to save us and He's for us. Shouldn't those truths change how we live, how we think? Later in Romans, in chapter 13, Paul says this in verse 11, and do this. Understanding the present time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. I think this language here is very interesting, especially in light of the conqueror illustration that Paul uses in Romans 8. What's he talking about? Well, first he's saying the time is getting short, and obviously the, the time when Jesus returns and this age is over is getting closer every day. The time for us to reach people around us with the gospel is running out. And Paul was saying that 2,000 years ago. Folks, I think Jesus might return a lot sooner than many of us want to consider. So how should we respond to that? Paul says, turn from the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Paul uses this metaphor of taking off old clothes and putting on new clothes lots of places in his writings. But in this case, he's saying we need to put on a clothing appropriate for battle. See, Paul understood we are in a war. This war didn't have tanks and bombs and missiles. It's a war in the unseen spiritual realm. It's fought between the forces of God and those demons and powers mentioned in verse 38. Now, I know for some of you enlightened children of the 21st century, you're sitting here going, the devil and demons, that's just fantasy. You're going, Pastor Joe, that's just stuff they make movies about, like vampires and werewolves and zombies. Not real. Well, Paul, and more importantly, Jesus himself thought they were real. And you know, he ought to know. I think one of the most effective lies Satan has perpetrated in our time is to convince most people that he doesn't exist. Ephesians 6.12 For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Hey, just because our adversary isn't visible, just because of those spiritual forces of evil operate out of heavenly places, 
it doesn't mean they're not real. If you're a follower of Christ, they're out to take you down. Like it or not, you're a soldier in this war. And you better be for your own protection. This church has a mission to accomplish, and you have your own personal part in it. How you doing on that, soldier? Paul told us that we're more than conquerors. Now, notice he didn't say we're defenders. He didn't say we should be fending off the charge of the enemy as he's coming after us. He says we're conquerors. We should be taking it to the enemy. The spiritual forces of evil. Matthew 16, 18. I know you guys, probably many of you know this verse. Jesus said this, And I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, I don't know about you, I've never had a gate jump out and attack me. No gate has ever tried to knock me down. No, Jesus himself has told us he expects the church to be on the offensive in this war. We're supposed to be storming the very gates of hell, pulling out souls before this age ends, and those gates slam shut forever. We are more than conquerors. You know, that's why we're opening this campus in Whitehall. That's why these folks are starting to meet next Sunday. It isn't so I can say, oh, look, now I don't have to drive as far to church. How convenient for me. No. This is a group from our own body that's going to be on mission, boots on the ground, reaching out from within Whitehall, going after lost people that live there before they're trapped inside those gates of hell forever. And I'll tell you what, we ought to be doing a lot more of that in Gehenna. Because God's for us, because we're more than conquerors, because nothing can separate us from his love, we should be bold to proclaim his message everywhere, to anyone, to everyone. And and here's the thing, we already know the outcome of this war. So as you engage in the daily skirmishes with the enemy, know that the final outcome's already determined. And I'll let you in a little secret. God wins. Don't you want to be a part of that? Something bigger than yourself? Something that rescues people from certain doom? Something with results that will last forever? Don't you want to hear your commander-in-chief say, well done, good and faithful servant? Man, I sure do. That brings me to the second point. Tap into the power source. So we have this incredible gift bought for us at a staggering cost, as Paul so richly describes here. But like those ladies at lunch, we don't use it. We leave it laying on the table. So how can we take hold of this gift and live in a way that makes a real difference? How can we use it to defeat those spiritual forces of evil? How can we harness it to accomplish the mission God has for us? Well, I think Paul really spells it out in this passage. He says, remember, it's who God is and what he's done for you that gives you power to spare. The death, resurrection, and present reign of Jesus has given us more power than we'll ever need. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, Hebrews 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We always have to look to Jesus. 
when you focus on Jesus, it's going to change your whole perspective. No, let me say it this way. It's going to correct your perspective. Focusing on ourselves, that's like pulling the plug right out of the wall. John 15, 5, remember the worship arts community, you're tired of hearing me say this because I say it every week. If you remain in me and I in you, Jesus says, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And guess what nothing means? Nothing. When we focus on Jesus, we see that he's big enough to do whatever we need. We see that it's not about us. We can stop living in fear. We're going to want to live for God's approval, not man's approval. We're going to keep going when things get tough. I wish I had more time to go into all this. Sign up for the Worship Summit coming up in March. I'm going to talk about all these things in more detail. But I do want to look at one aspect of this in particular. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, we'll be selfless rather than selfish. Now, I think for us here in the American suburbs, that one's hard. We are so focused on our lives and our plans and what we want. And our culture says live for yourself and your desires and needs. But when we look to Jesus, we begin to see just how trivial all these earthly things are in the light of what God has done in his mission in the world. We have to shift our perspective from what we can see and feel and touch right now to what really matters forever. We're going to be talking about that in the coming weeks. Since God's for us and will graciously give us all things, how do we respond to that? Well, I think we should give of our time, talents, and treasure to advance God's kingdom here on earth. Our culture is telling us to sink time into sports and hobbies and climbing the corporate ladder, get wrapped up in social media and entertainment politics. We crowd our lives with all this stuff so much that there's no room for God. Are you honoring God with your time? I know there's plenty of ministry needs that go unfilled around here. Some of you have talents that God could put to great use to accomplish his purposes, but you aren't using them for him. God's given every believer gifts to use in accomplishing his kingdom mission. And some of us just need to like stop saying, I'll give you this much, God, and not that much more, too. Too few shoulder too much of the burden to make up for those who don't serve. Are you honoring God with your talents? If you look at the back of your worship folder every week, you'll see that more of our treasure could be used to do his work. And I'm going to go off my notes for a second. I picked up a worship folder when I came in last night. Budget giving shortage, $34,862. Now, I know a lot of you are going, insurmountable. I don't have that. Well, it also says total New Life Ministry partners, 865. There have been 27 weeks so far in the budget year, so I did the math. You know how much we're short? A buck 49 per ministry partner per week. And that's just to meet the budget that's been cut and cut and cut. That's not even what we could do if the people of God would give resources to his work that would allow us to do so much more. Are you honoring God with your treasure? What if you believe that God is for you, enough to take that risk that Pastor Steve talked about last weekend, to do something that might be radical and crazy in the eyes of the world, but will have significance forever? Maybe go to a hard place and and do a hard thing for the cause of love. Maybe ask yourself, how can I invest my life and resources to meet needs instead of for my own comfort? Be selfless, and you'll make a difference for Christ. And you'll be happy you did it forever.
Ephesians 3, verse 20, start the beginning of it, says this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. He's able to do more than we ask or think. So I suppose that means we need to adjust our asking and thinking upward. Dream big. Go further. Serve more. Give until it hurts. Pour ourselves out for his cause and see what he'll do through his power at work in us. And that brings me to the final point. Embrace the gospel. Now, this last point is going to bring this message of Romans 8 back to each of us as individuals, and it has two different implications. Which one applies to you depends on whether you're among those Paul is talking to in this passage or you aren't. So let's start with those of us who love God and called him according to his purpose, those who have believed the message of the gospel and accepted the sacrifice of Jesus for your sins. Folks, there's more to the gospel than a get-out-of-hell-free card. If we truly take in the scope of the sacrifice that God made for us, it's going to compel us to live in light of that truth. We're going to let Jesus live through us. What's that look like? I think that if we get that one drop of his blood is enough to cover for every one of our sins, we're going to be all in on his mission for us. If we understand that the death and resurrection of Christ means we don't have to be perfect, that freedom is going to empower us to take risks for him. Since God graciously gives us all things, how can we not turn around and give those things right back to him to use for his cause? This church has a mission to serve people, to worship God deeply, and to take the gospel to those around us to rescue people from an eternity without God. Are we doing everything we can to carry out that mission? What grade would Jesus give us on our spiritual report card today? But beyond New Life's collective mission, what about us, each of us personally? Each of us has a customized mission specially created for you to use your time, talents, and treasure to advance the cause of God, the God who's for you. If, if Jesus was physically right here, right now, sitting next to you, what would he say to you about how your mission is going? Well done, good and faithful servant. Maybe he'd say, you're doing this well, but you need to work on this. You're carrying out your mission enthusiastically. You're lackadaisical about it. Do you even know what your mission is? My desire is for all of us to make a commitment today to embrace the gospel and commit to that personal mission to figure out what it is, if you've gotten away for it, from it to get back on your mission, or if you're already carrying it out, maybe recommit to just being even all the more committed to it. Time's growing short. Now, what if you're not among those Paul's writing to here? What if you've not accepted the sacrifice of Jesus? You don't, you don't have the blood of Jesus acting as a counterbalance for you. In that case, my friend, what this passage says isn't nearly as encouraging. Unfortunately, God's against you. Or really said better, it's you that's against God. Maybe without even knowing it. The sacrifice of Jesus dying for the sins of mankind, his resurrection and present rulership, it can be for you too. He can become your advocate with God the Father. But you have to accept his free gift. You have to repent of your sins, believe in Jesus, and call upon his name. Then the blood of Jesus will tip the scale in your favor too, despite all the wrong things that you've done. If you don't, when you die, you'll be trapped inside those gates of hell we talked about forever. The choice is yours. Accept God's gift of salvation and God will be for you. Reject it. 
And at the end of this life, you'll find out the agony of what it means to have God himself be against you. So as we wrap up today, I want to ask you this, folks. What will you say to these things? More than just responding in your heart and mind, I'm going to ask you to put feet to your response. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel built monuments to help them remember the things that God had done. And I want us to do something to remember what God has shown us as we've studied through Romans chapter 8. Up here at the front, there's, there's cards. They look like this. And it's to help you commemorate what God has said to you through Romans. It says this, as God's message for me from Romans 8 is, and then fill in the blank. It might be something from today or one of the other weeks, maybe a combination. What's God's personalized message for you based on what we've seen in Romans 8? When we uh, wrap up here, come down and get a card. You can pray over whatever commitment God is calling you to today and ask for his help to do it. You can fill in the card down here if you want, or you can take it back to your seat. There's no rush. There's plenty of time. You can come up anytime. And take that card with you and put it someplace you're going to see it. Let it be a reminder to tap into the power source and embrace the gospel and fulfill your mission every day. Now, if you're not a believer in Christ yet, you can't be on mission until you enlist. God isn't for you until you accept this offer of salvation. So if God's nudging you to turn from your sins and trust the sacrifice, you can come up here. There's a space at the bottom. It's got a light bulb. You can check that in. It says, I want to repent of my sins, believe in Jesus, and call upon his name today. Grab a card. Mark that. Take it to one of the prayer partners. They'll be up here. They would love to walk you through how to do that. And you can walk out of here knowing that blood of Jesus is tipping the scale in your favor today. Let's pray. God, thank you for the profound truth in this passage. Thank you for the things you've shown me through this. God, I pray for everyone who's already a believer in you, God, that we will take this seriously. Wake up, God, from our slumber and get busy because the time grows short in this age. Help us, God. Help us. Help us to keep in mind heavenly things and not get just so wrapped up in things on the earth. It's so easy to do. God, for those who have not believed in your name, may many of them come today. Take this card. Talk to a prayer partner, God. May they know what it means to have the blood of Jesus tip the scales in their favor today. I pray, God, give them boldness. Give them courage to come and talk to someone. God, as we respond to your speaking in our hearts today, we commit this time to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's